This is a joint event hosted by LSE School of Public Policy, uh, Institute of Global Affairs, International Growth Center, and South Asia Center. So South Asia is home to roughly a quarter of humanity. So what happens there matters to the world. And in terms of COVID-19 policy response, there is enough heterogeneity in policy response in South Asia across different countries and within countries across different governments, state governments and local governments. And there are enough lessons out there for not just South Asia, but hopefully the world. And today we have an excellent panel to discuss these issues. Um, we'll uh, let me quickly, their, their uh, bios are quite impressive bios are there on the online. Let me very quickly introduce them. And, um, uh, and then also share how we'll run this session. So first off, we have Tanya Idrus, who after a successful career as senior executive at Google, um, uh, is now special assistant to the Prime Minister of Pakistan on Digital Pakistan. Then we'll have Jishnu Das, who is a professor at Georgetown University, had a long career at World Bank, and has a large body of work on health and education, among other issues. Uh, then we'll have Yamini Ayer, who is president and CEO of uh, Center for Policy Research in New Delhi, and has a large body of work on state capacity and many other issues. And last but not the least, we have Professor Mushfiq Mubarak, who is Professor of Economics at Yale University and Founder and Faculty Director of Yale Research Initiative on Scale and Innovation, among many other hats that he also wears. So uh, we'll go in this order. Uh, each of the speakers, starting from Tanya and then Dishnu and then Yamni and then Mushfiq, will have roughly seven minutes to share uh, their experience and uh, one thing to remind the audience is all of these speakers not only have deep knowledge about uh, about South Asia and in particular for particular countries, but also are uh, very actively participating in the policy response on, on COVID-19 in, in South Asia. So they can not only ex uh, talk from their previous, uh, their expertise and their policy work, but also their current work on COVID-19. So we'll start off with Yamini, um, uh, start off with Tanya and then Jishnu and then Yamini and Mushfiq. Each one will speak for roughly seven minutes. Uh, then I'll pose a question to each of them and then we'll open up for question answers and I'll give instructions into how to pose your questions on, on the Q&A uh, function. So let's start with Tanya. Okay, fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Dr. Adnan, um, for inviting me, and, and thank you to LSE for uh, hosting this panel. Um, you know, very honored to be part of this uh, part of this group. Um, I'll spend a couple of minutes walking you through um, some of the components of the tech response to COVID um, in Pakistan, um, and you know, very very quickly. Um, also try to tie some of the policy pieces that have come as, as a result of that. So, you know, I don't think this uh, particular audience needs any introduction um, uh, to Pakistan, but just very quickly, you know, over 200 million people, um, you know, internet penetration is still relatively low, but growing. Uh, literacy rate is about under 60%. The smartphone install base is, uh, is under about 70 million people. Uh, largely low-tier smartphones, and you know the reason this is important is to understand how um, when we you know when we started thinking about what the tech response to COVID would be, it was actually incredibly important to understand most of these components. 
So, um, you know, we were one of the countries that were hit um, slightly later um, in, in, in sort of what I would call um, the not the first wave of countries, but, you know, Pakistan got its sort of first case. It was about the third week of February and the first death was recorded uh, around the third, uh, it was the 23rd or 24th of March. So there had been some time just looking at what was happening in Southeast Asia and a number of the other countries, and of course in China, um, and also had started to happen in Europe, just to start to understand um, what was happening around the world. Um, And of course, I think one of the big first few challenges we had was how were we going to get this message out broadly to a country like Pakistan? And, And I'm just going to flip through this very quickly, just as representative examples of the types of things we've done um, around communication. So, uh, you know, one of the things we put in place very quickly was um, updated ringtones. So ringtones are a big deal in South Asia. And, um, you know, and what we've done is, is we've evolved the message as the disease has evolved. So in the beginning, it was, um, you know, we were basically trying to help people understand what COVID was. Um, The most recent change um, to ringtones has been, um, about masks. In the middle, it was about social distancing. Um, there was you know, another one in the middle where we were talking about um, you know, per, uh, particular events that were coming up like Eid and how important it was for people to stay, um, uh, you know, stay safe and stay home. Um, the other thing you see here is um, we started doing contact tracing SMS messages. So as, um, as we started understanding the uh, number of people who may have come in contact with somebody who was coming positive, we started sending them sort of um, cautionary SMSs and um, you know, over half a million have been sent um, uh, cautionary SMSs through contact tracing. Um, the other thing we did very, very quickly again was, you know, the internet in Pakistan is, uh, is WhatsApp. And so we, you know, we realized rather than um, doing websites, which of course also exists, Um, But we felt like it was important to have communication uh, channels built through WhatsApp and also through Facebook Messenger, both of who have a very large user base. Um, And so we basically launched these chatbots um, where people could just engage fairly easily um, on both WhatsApp as well as on Messenger just to ask very simple questions that you can see on the right. Um, So, you know, the screenshot you see on the right is is fairly simple. So when you open, when you send a WhatsApp message to that number on top, you get these 10 different options. Um, and this was available in, in seven different languages. So we've seen, we've seen very good usage. We, a lot of people engage. You can also get daily stats um, of the number of positive cases, the number of um, people who've died. So, the, you know, people have been um, engaging on this. We've recently also introduced a telehealth option um, through this WhatsApp uh, bot. Um, and, you know, again, I, I can't uh, spend enough time talking about data, but, you know, the reason this you'll see me coming back to this over and over again, in a country like Pakistan, where uh, healthcare is a devolved topic, um, and so, you know, health is managed provincially. So you could literally think of it as um, six different uh, countries trying to manage, uh, you know, a national response to COVID. One of the single first first and foremost things that we had to solve for was how were we going to get accurate national information on where cases were coming up, um, how many people were being tested, where they were positive. And also, you know, once we started getting into the wave of people dying, where how were we going to get that information on as close to a real-time basis 
so that we could actually start to even think about how we were going to respond um, to that. And um, I think, again, you know, one of the very early things that we did was we looked around to see were there any um, central systems that we could piggyback on um, as this disease was breaking. Um, and interestingly enough, one of the only national systems that existed that was flexible and sort of ready for us to use was the polio uh, data entry system. So Pakistan is, is one of the countries where polio still unfortunately exists. Um, and so what we did was we basically used um, the data entry system for polio and very quickly rolled it out. It was a flexible system, so sort of changing some of the questions. But really the idea was that any and any lab that was or any hospital that was testing for COVID um, should be using this um, uh, uh, database or this system to, basic, to basically log in um, who they were testing and, and what the results were. Over time, we also wanted to make sure that we had contact information for these people um, and their ID card numbers so that we could actually go and figure out, um, you know, um, who else lived in their households, if we had to contact them, um, uh, you know, afterwards to check in on them or their symptoms, that we needed that information. And that all started, it took us a while to get it together, but it's literally been, um, you know, and I, again, I can't emphasize this enough, probably one of the core components of the response that we've um, been able to provide, because, you know, at this point, while there still continues to be a little bit of lag, we are now getting, um, you know, we, we start the morning every day with input, looking at the dashboard that uh, comes out of um, out of this system. This was again, you know, same thing applied to when when it when it got to things like equipment. So whether it was hospital beds, vents, oxygen supply, um, you know, PPEs, there wasn't a national map of what was available where. Um, and again, this is one of those things that we had to jump in on very, very early just to get a sense of, you know, here are the hospitals, here is their capacity, um, you know, and again, try to map that back to where we were seeing disease breaking out so that we could really understand and help our National Disaster Management Authority figure out where um, procure, you know, procurement had to be done and where it had to be distributed to. Um, we've also sort of, again, over the past three months, um, you know, tried to do a few different types of predictive modeling approaches. So, of course, we're, we're doing um, sort of classic uh, epi modeling, but we've also um, used a number of uh, machine learning AI companies to do modeling for us. And again, here, the idea is, is as we've collected more and more data, um, it's, and, and the data sources are becoming more credible, um, it's becoming a little bit easier to predict what the next two weeks and four weeks may look like. And again, you know, this is a disease, as we all know, which is impossible, um, impossible to predict. Um, and it's hit different parts of the world very, very differently. Um, and then, you know, again, these are just uh, some examples. I'll walk to them very quickly. We partnered with a number of organizations who were already doing telehealth just to make sure that we could actually, um, you know, offer more and more people the ability to get consult. They could stay at home and get consultations, um, or particularly when they were um, experiencing symptoms. We we really wanted to make sure people weren't leaving their homes, and this was again in the in the early um, wave when COVID had hit. Um, since then, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, the government of Pakistan also launched uh, a, a telehealth help helpline, and again, really the idea here was. Um, let's connect doctors um, who may be sitting at home right now or, or, or you know, otherwise can give us one or two hours of their time and sort of build a supply and demand 
almost Uber-like system to take doctors who may have one or two hours available during the day and connect them to patients um, you know, who, who want to have a call with the doctor to discuss their symptoms. So this was launched um, about two months ago. And um, you know, I'll, I'll walk through these very, very quickly. Again, we've tried um, very hard to make sure that a, a lot of this is available in multiple languages. So for example, this is currently available in Urdu, Pashto, Punjabi, um, Sindhi. And again, you know, the idea is, is we, we want to make sure that this gets down to as many languages as possible. Um, and, you know, we'll walk through this very quickly just to, um, in, you know, again, more recently, um, what's, and again, this is something that's been happening all over, but um, ensuring that healthcare workers around the country had a, a means and a mechanism to reach out to the government and get support for whatever. It could be something as simple as, um, you know, we, we need PPEs um, or we have a shortage of N95 masks or, um, you know, this particular hospital needs more ventilators or we need more beds or, um, you know, there is the security or safety of a doctor may be um, at risk. And we wanted to make sure that there were multiple means and mechanisms for us to be able to collect that information for our frontline workers. Um, so th- this was a- another effort that was launched um, fairly recently um, and, you know, again, absolute need of the day. So I'll quickly run, run through this. Um, a couple of other things that are in the works and, um, uh, you know, on their way to being uh, launched. Um, one is, you know, and again, this is not going to come as a surprise to anyone here, but, um, you know, mental health is a huge need. Um, it's already an incredibly taboo topic in this part of the world. And particularly with uh, people staying at home, we wanted to make sure that people had um, the ability to get help um, uh, when it came to mental health um, in, a, in a completely confidential and secure manner. So this is this is another option that we are now creating in a very similar fashion to what we're doing with telehealth, um, but particularly focused on mental health. Um, we are applying the same thing to domestic violence as well. And again, there... The, um, and it, this is a problem that we have seen, uh, again, quite prevalent in this part of the world, but happening everywhere, where victims of domestic violence, um, connecting them to, uh, you know, to, to legal experts who can guide them um, d- uh, during this time. So that is something that will also be coming very soon. Uh, something, again, very similar on blood, blood plasma donation. Um, you know, again, you, you realize that there while there are lots of efforts going on for, for plasma um, around the country, there isn't a central sort of national view but that connects both donors with patients who may need it. And of course, I mean, this is, you know, plasma is still a, um, a highly uh, questionable um, treatment form, but, but the need for a mechanism to do this connection definitely exists. Um, you know, I'll skip through these very quickly. This is just some of the things that we've done in education. Um, and I'll, I'll um, you know, jump off the slides very quickly. This is the last thing is um, we've been very inspired by a number of countries around the world that have, um, you know, fundamentally realized that really one of the core ways that you can tackle this disease in the long term is by getting your citizens to follow um, the the SOPs and you know whether it's something like wearing a mask when you're in public um, or whether you're actually complying to a quarantine or a stay-at-home order. Now, in a in a country like Pakistan, and and, and you know I, I would say this applies to a large part of South Asia, a large part of the emerging world, emerging market world. 
is that you know there 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 are challenges with education there are ch- challenges with getting people to actually take instruction and follow them and um we have to come up with mechanisms where there is you know sort of enough of a carrot and stick um for when you're telling when you're giving somebody a stay at home order first of all you have to be able to check whether they have their homes have the ability for them to quarantine effectively the the number of one room households in pakistan is incredibly high um and so that's something that we're now starting to look at very closely you can't go out and give blanket stay at home orders to people but also once you have asked somebody to quarantine what are the mechanisms through which you know you deploying tech but also um actually you know deploying boots on the ground like people visiting um you know a combination of the two is incredibly important because a tech only solution um really has not proven to work anywhere even in countries like singapore um and so this is um uh, actually a, a a solution that we're building currently and it's about to go live for travelers that will be entering into pakistan we've gone from um you know from having a policy where every single person entering pakistan um from outside the country was being tested so and people were being quarantined while their test results were coming out and as you can imagine once you start to think about opening up flights that's an incredibly hard policy to continue with and so we're now moving we've uh, we're we're a couple of days away from not only opening up flights more but also moving away from this test everybody uh, policy to move you know to actually issuing stay at home orders um through uh, a technology that, like this where we're collecting a bunch of information on people um we're verifying um travelers mobile numbers um and then using um a number of different mechanisms to get their location and to be able to understand if they're breaking their quarantine location um and so again you know happy to answer questions on these later um but i think i may be right on time so i'm going to uh flip through these very quickly and just end by saying there are a number of other things we are um trialing right now one is around voice biometrics so you know if um through um robocalls we are trying to check if somebody is actually staying at home and they're not leaving their phone with someone else to answer um we are now using machine learning um and ai to to ensure that the person is who they're who they're supposed to be so the person who's answering the phone is who they are um also using machine learning to do cough recognition to see um uh, to determine that a covid cough and how it differs from a regular cough that is non covid um a number of other things again where machine learning is uh, currently being deployed uh, mask detection in public areas um at the entrance of buildings etc um social distancing detection again here making sure that the distance is greater than the um, ascribed amount um and you know n- number of other things here so i'll i'll end with that because i know i'm at time but happy to answer um any additional questions uh, afterwards thank you um okay so i am going to dive into uh something a little bit more detailed um and thanks again adnan for having me here and for the lse team i wanted to talk a little bit about uh, issues that are coming up around um uh testing in south asia and just to remind people one purpose of testing is clearly therapeutic i mean if you show up in a hospital and you are feeling sick and doctors need to know what you have um a covid test is a is a um a response for a number of such symptoms another purpose of testing is to assess the stock of infected people so people have been talking about 
you know, the antibody or the serological tests that give us some idea of what fraction of the population is already infected. Here, I want to talk about a third type of testing, uh, which is to identify people who are infected with COVID-19 to break transmission chains. So I think about this as testing for detection. Uh, it's not among people who have already gone to a hospital. It's not to detect the existing stock. It's to say, can we identify people who are sick early and break the transmission at that point? Uh, and with community transmission, which means it's not clear where somebody got sick from, the WHO advice is to start surveillance in the community and test those who are symptomatic. Right. So if you look at all the COVID kind of uh, um, phase two in the U.S., in different counties, look at all kinds of measures that are being taken. This is primarily the strategy, for instance, behind taking temperature at workplaces or other public sites. The idea is, you know, we we screen you with a with a um, touchless thermometer, check if you have a fever and do all kinds of different things if, if you do versus you don't. So the question is, how effective is the strategy and are there alternatives? And I want to think about effectiveness both in terms of how many cases would such a strategy detect and the cost of testing, uh, because the latter is turning out to be quite an important issue in, in, in several contexts, right? So the biggest problem that we hit once we start thinking about testing for detection is this problem of asymptomatic individuals, so let me just show you a couple of numbers. So in states we are working in, 70 to 80% of infected individuals appear to be asymptomatic. Now, it's not completely clear yet, and we are working on it, on whether these people are pre-symptomatic, which means they will develop symptoms through the course of the disease, but they didn't have them at the time of testing. But there are increasing indications that most of them are truly asymptomatic. They do not develop any symptoms through the course of their illness. In addition, we are analyzing contact tracing data from one state in India, and it's looking like more than 50% of all infections in the state can be traced back to asymptomatic infections. So it's not only that these people remain without any signs or symptoms through the duration of the illness, but despite that, they seem to be able to pass on the illness to others. So let me show you quite an incredible graph of some analysis of data. And here what we have plotted is the age of the tested person on the x-axis and the probability that they have symptoms on the y-axis. Now, here's the point. Among those who are testing positive, regardless of their age, the likelihood of having symptoms goes somewhere between about you know 8% to somewhere at its max at about 18%. Among those who have tested, who are uh, a testing uh, uh, negative, the probability of having symptoms is even higher, right? That's weird. And the reason for that is the only people who are being tested who are negative are actually contacts of infected cases. So this is just telling us that, look, if you're a contact, it's much more predictive of you having the sickness than if you have symptoms. 
The, the, the problem is we don't have a good comparison right now for how much does symptomatic screening actually give us versus alternate strategies. And let me take you through one example with data of what I mean here and why this is becoming such a critical issue. So imagine just going into a community and just picking up people uh, or sampling randomly. And by random, I mean the statistical sense of random, which is a specific person, uh, uh, you know, who's chosen with, with equal probability from the entire population. If you were to do that in one of the areas we're working in, the positivity rate was running at about 4%. Interestingly, these were small urban areas where, where in fact, there were no known infections. Even there, the positivity rate was running at 4%. Now, here's the interesting thing. Of all the people we went to, only 3.5% reported a symptom. And among those 3.5%, 6% tested positive. You can put these numbers together. You know, I've taken a lower bound on how much it costs to visit a household at about $1. And I've assumed that testing costs about $40 per person, uh, which is probably going to come down over time. Now, you have two options. You can visit and test 10,000 households. Or you can say, look, uh, we are going to visit and screen 10,000 households, but we're going to test only those who have symptoms. Right? Now, under option one, which is just going and visiting and, ten, and testing 10,000 households, you'll get 400 people who are positive. Remember, our positivity rate is 4%. And the total cost of tests will be about $400,000. So the cost per positive detection will run at about $1,000. Under option two, you're going to test only 350 people. Why? Because only 3.5% of all individuals are reporting a system uh, a symptom. And out of those 350, 21 people will be detected positive. Why? Because 6% of those who have symptoms are detecting, are, are, are turning out to be positive. So the cost for positive detection is now, sorry, uh, the, the total cost is now $350,000, but 379 people who have infections in this population are going to be missed. Do you can you can choose another option. You can say, what if we test ten thousand people after screening? That would lead to six hundred detections, which is more than the four hundred with with simple random sampling. But it would mean visiting three hundred and thirty thousand households because so few are reporting symptoms. So at a total cost that is actually higher than simple random sampling per positive case detected. So for both models. Simple random sampling dominates because of the dominance of asymptomatic individuals. And I want to take this point to say, look, this is not what we should be doing. Uh, simple random sampling is only a very crude benchmark against which comparisons are being made. What I do think is we should be able to do a lot better by identifying better risk characteristics 
or identifying those characteristics of individuals that means that they have a higher likelihood of infection. They may be biological, they might be social, perhaps these are people who are you know, healthcare workers and meeting lots of sick people, or perhaps they're shopkeepers who are, you know, have contacts with many, many people in their in their uh, neighborhoods. But even a 2% increase in positivity implies significant cost savings and importantly, better detection in, in, in the long run. Now, what we found quite, you know, unexpectedly is this program runs into two problems that currently we don't have good solutions for and it needs urgent attention. First of all, it needs a structured process of experimental testing over some period of time. We are going to need a clear protocol and a clear way of moving forward in saying, how do we identify these risk characteristics at the moment we don't know. Second, and equally importantly, it needs the cooperation and consent of the tested population. So just to give you a couple of examples, uh, you know, my sense working on this over the last three to four months has been that there's insufficient recognition that we need much better research on the non-clinical but epidemiological aspects of COVID-19. It seems to me that a lot of the information that's coming our way is based off whatever is happening out there. Instead of us saying, look, this is the next question we need to answer to help governments move forward on this. And we need this information to be collected in a targeted manner. How do we get that done? The second issue is all of this, all of this material I'm talking about, there's a critical intersection of policies and treatment of positive patients, including stigma, that's leading to considerable population resistance to testing. So if you think about the US debate or the UK debate, it's all about the number of tests and, you know, can we increase the number of tests and can we test more people? In South Asia, you're running into the problem that people don't want to be tested. And there's simple reasons for that. Part of it is if you're saying, look, you were sitting there, you had no idea you had COVID, uh, you're asymptomatic, suddenly somebody comes into your house, says, let's test you, comes back two days later and drags you off to a quarantine center that is pretty dubious in some cases. It's not clear how you're going to be treated. And you're there for 21 days. You can see as a population, and that's happening in 80% of cases, you can see as a population, this is going to create massive resistance to testing in this situation, right? So I don't think we have very good ideas about how do we come back and say, look, we need an overall system that A, removes the stigma, many people are going to get infected, uh, uh, and ensure that anybody who's tested positive has both the means and the willingness to take testing forward are both kind of really important state capacity questions at this point. So let me conclude on that, which is as the infection is widening in South Asia, and there are all indications that they are, we need to move towards testing in the community. That much is, is clear with everybody. And the accepted strategy right now is based on symptom screening, but we need better strategies. Uh, this in turn is going to require both the recognition of, of, of a need for structured experimentation and research by governments and funders. Uh, I've been quite surprised at uh, how 
people often say, look, this is not the time for research. We need to act. But somehow they don't say that about vaccine or medicine trials. So nobody says, oh, let's just push a vaccine out because we need to act. No, there are rules and ways of ascertaining that these are useful things for populations. Similarly, we need to think about social policy in that same vein. We don't want to push out things that do not work or at worst may be harmful for the cause that we're all trying to fight. It also requires a process of building trust with local populations, which is a fundamental question that at the moment we do not have a very good answer to. So let me stop there and hand it over to Yamini, who I think is going to take forward uh, the the question of state capacity and what we need in in, uh, next. Thank you, Adnan. Thank you, Jishnu. Over to you, Yamini. Thank you. Thank you, Adnan. And uh, thank you, LSE, for having me. It's uh, as a former LSE alum who spent far too much time in the bar and far less time in the classroom. It's always a pleasure. The learnings of a bar certainly helped to bring me back uh, in a later and perhaps somewhat more relatively marginally more mature, uh, at least by virtue of age uh, status. Um, Pleasure to be here. And uh, Jishnu, I think you you, you really did set up uh, for me exactly how I wanted to enter this debate. Um, You know, uh, in early March, as uh, it increasingly began to look in India, certainly, and I think across South Asia, uh, that COVID is uh, no longer going to be something that we assume is happening uh, in faraway places um, and that uh, our countries are going to have to confront this uh, very, very crucially. Uh, Many of us who work on the question of the state and the state capacity and state capacity and how our public systems function um, sort of came to the conclusion that the next few months and in fact the our our government's response to the challenge of of covid is is really going to test uh, our states and our public systems in unprecedented ways um and <clears throat> i think what we uh, have seen certainly over the last uh, four months unfold in India uh, is a reminder just of how uh, uh, how how serious a test that has, this has been, and uh, unfortunately, I think, and uh, as I will walk through uh, in the in the course of the next few minutes, um, certainly the Indian state hasn't come out of this test um, anywhere close to uh, flying colours, and it poses some very very crucial questions that we need answered as we enter the next phase uh, of of fighting uh, fighting this disease uh, I think one of the things that is very uh, that, that is that's completely honest, underestimated in our understandings of state capacity is the issue of trust uh, that Jishnu just brought up Jishnu brought it up in the context of a very specific action of the state testing uh, but I'm as uh, I'm, I'm going to draw on that to, to take it even uh, uh, e- even more forward in terms of how the relationship of trust uh, uh, between citizens and government Governments in low capacity environments actually has a very significant impact on shaping kinds of policy responses uh, that governments take uh, in moments of crises. Um, in India, uh, towards the begin- uh, middle of March, uh, as our government began to think through what response would be appropriate and adequate uh, for India, uh, and at that point, really, uh, we had uh, the number of COVID cases we had could well be not quite counted on your fingertips, but certainly were within range of. Uh, 
what seemed to be manageable, especially if you compare it with many other infectious diseases that the country uh, uh, wrestles with, uh, including TB that Jishnu has worked on uh, for so many years. Um, there, there was a, the answer seemed almost too obvious. Uh, there was a elite consensus uh, that uh, the only option we had was to move in the direction of a complete lockdown, which is where we ended up on the 25th of March. And in fact, now four months later are slowly in the process of unlocking. And the reason we said we needed to lock down is because we had absolutely no trust and faith in what is already a very broken public health system to be able to manage the pressures uh, of, uh, of what COVID may place on it. We looked to the West and we said, if the U UK and the US uh, uh, and Italy were all crumbling at the time. Their health systems couldn't manage. There was absolutely no way that the Indian system would be able to manage this. Now, this trust is not unfounded. Uh, After all, our public health system is indeed extremely broken. But because we didn't trust the system to be able to be responsive, this seemed to be the only legitimate choice we had. What unfolded over the next two months has been a story of, uh, I think, somewhat deep tragedy, because what we failed to understand uh, was that when you switch the button of the economy off uh, in a country which with 90 percent of the population working in the informal economy uh, and uh, this a significant proportion of that with absolutely no social security uh, dependent on wage labor, uh, daily income for survival. When you switch the button of the economy off, you are going to experience extremely severe livelihood crisis. So when we began, we said we were in a state where life is valuable and we'll have to, uh, we'll have to work through livelihood in order to save lives. Uh, and what we saw was actually when you switch off the livelihood button, a very fragile and vulnerable economy minus social security, uh, minus a robust state, in fact, in which people had very limited trust, uh, this is the, the economy actually collapses in unimaginable ways. The most defining uh, moment of uh, the the Indian lockdown was lacks of Indian migrant workers, people who move from rural areas to urban areas in search of casual work, uh, finding themselves minus an income and with no social security, no place to live and no food to eat, walking home, uh, doing exactly the opposite of what the state had asked them to do, which was not move out of your homes, stay put in one place until we find ways of strengthening our systems to deal with the crises. Um, We also saw this unfortunately fold uh, in other very crucial ways. Uh, the lack of trust uh, between, uh, with, uh, as a consequence of state capacity is, is partly uh, articulated in the breakdown of trust between citizens and what the state can offer them, uh, but also exists in a breakdown of trust between the state. Uh, so uh, India is, uh, like our neighbors, a federal country. Uh, we have states uh, constitutionally, public health. Health actually is a state subject. The responsibility for managing this crisis very much rested with the state. Um, But a breakdown of internal trust and a complex political economy between center and state resulted in a to begin with, certainly a very, very centralized, uh, New Delhi-driven approach uh, to how to manage both core elements of uh, the public public health uh, part of dealing uh, with with COVID, the lives part of dealing with COVID, as well as the livelihoods part of dealing with COVID, leaving state governments and local governments uh, somewhat uh, uh, disempowered in being able to make the kinds of choices they needed to make to be effective and responsive, both to the lives crisis, the 
the crisis of life and the crisis of livelihood. Uh, so this breakdown of trust plays a very important role in the kinds of policy choices that we make and the ways in which we try to address uh, the policy choices. Um, and you see this, you know, uh, ju- just staying with the economy for one moment before I get to public health, just in terms of the kind of social security response that we've, uh, uh, or economic response that we've been able to put in place uh, over these last three months, having switched the button of the economy off, um, we've done really very much the bare minimum in terms of providing basic relief and livelihoods. We're beginning to up the game a little bit now, uh, but for the for the course of the three months, and in particular, the most critical aspects of the first two months of the uh, of the total lockdown, uh, when vast tracts of the of the country was completely minus a livelihood, and the expectation was that the that the, the government would provide basic food and basic cash relief to all those who'd lost jobs. Uh, in fact, the ability of the central government to do much. Uh, uh, the central government dragged its feet and was uh, and didn't do enough, uh, leaving state governments who depend on the central government for resources also without the ability to be responsive. Uh, and as a result, uh, the kind of economic support that we've been able to give uh, has been uh, just about bare minimal. Uh, and even little things that ensuring that migrant workers who were on their way back home would be able to get free rations, just food grains, etc., were not put in place as we ended up in a tussle between the central government and the state governments. Uh, This lack of trust uh, also finds its way uh, in uh, how we have dealt with uh, some of the more COVID-specific aspects uh, of of what the crisis has has brought on uh, on the public health front. In India, we've often argued that uh, even though the Indian state fails on doing most of its routine things, whether it is providing good health or good education, uh, it manages to pull itself together very, very effectively in times of crisis. We are able to uh, provide a relatively good response when natural disasters hit, um, uh, whether it's floods or cyclones. In fact, in the middle of the COVID crisis, we've had at least two instances of cyclones where the state manages to gear its resources and respond effectively, both in terms of reconstruction of livelihoods as well as immediate health responses. And so there was a sense that... Perhaps, uh, despite the complexities of where we of, of what we confront, uh, once we went into lockdown mode, the state would be in a position to be able to at least gear itself up to manage the crises uh, that, uh, that that COVID presented. But here again, the dynamic of trust played in it has played, I think, quite an important role uh, in creating its own narratives of of complexity on the ground. Um, uh, uh, as as we've seen uh, from from what Jishnu was presenting, one of the most critical elements of dealing with COVID testing uh, brings together multiple aspects of the public health system, uh, and importantly, a very crucial element of uh, the governance structure, the management of data and information uh, that would enable us to uh, enable the system to to, to devise effective policy responses. Um, here, some of the important things that have happened. Uh, the management or the architecture of the data system has been federally designed, but the actual process of data collection and management uh, is handled at the uh, um, uh, at the provincial level, at the state level, and in fact, even more granularly uh, at the facility level. So it's the labs, from labs to hospitals, uh, and uh, th- that data is collected and aggregated at the state level, and from the state level, it has to be aggregated up uh, into the national database. Now, there is a logical first principles argument for this to be managed centrally 
The challenge is when, when you're operating in a low trust environment, the inability to have effective central and state coordination. So one of the things that we've noticed is that in the, in the construction of the data management system that uh, puts in data on identifying who is tested, collecting data on uh, the results of testing, collecting data on what happens post-testing, so where do patients go, uh, who is retested, uh, and finally, what are, what are the final ho- uh, outcomes of, uh, of patients? Because after all, we are not just interested in who tests positive and who tests negative. We are also interested in the he- health outcomes uh, of those uh, of patients who, who test positive. Um, at each of these levels, uh, state governments and actually local governments need to collect different kinds of information that are relevant for them. And the central government or the national government has to collect a very different kind of information that is relevant to the national level. Uh, so, so, so at the central government level, you want to compare states, you want to look across a much wider platform, uh, whereas at the local and, and provincial level, you're, you're, you're looking for data to be able to take quick and agile decisions. But when the data is structured uh, at a higher level and there are few spaces for interaction, very often the question of why I'm collecting data, where it's getting aggregated up and what I'm using most importantly data for never gets asked or answered. And so we currently have a data structure that uh, doesn't give you often the kind of data that you need to be able to make the kinds of decisions that Jishnu was talking about. Who should I test? Where should I test? And then what happens after to patients? Uh, that then makes it very difficult for local governments who are tasked with actually having to go, having to undertake the surveys, identify people that they are testing uh, and engage with them much harder because they simply do not have information. So how do you actually build an environment of trust when core, when the key practitioners on the ground don't have access to the kind of information they need to be able to engage with the system is one uh, is, is, is a very, very critical uh, challenge, um, uh, challenge that we face. Um, and, and, and similarly, uh, our ability to actually make sense of the data gets limited because uh, the, the way in which the data architecture has been created uh, and this, the, 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 the complex dynamics between the, the, Fed, the, the central government and the state governments has resulted in a context where um, uh, uh, a lot of the, uh, you, you, uh, the, we actually don't have a good enough mechanism for being able to compare and cross-verify data. Uh, the data itself are not interoperable across the different levels, uh, both of center state as well as facilities, because what states have done then is to go ahead and do their own uh, uh, build, build systems that make sense for them while they have to comply with requirements of the national government. So these dynamics of negotiation across levels of government become very, very important in moments like this. And low trust makes it very hard to strengthen these dynamics. A related issue that we are beginning to discover on uh, uh, the capacity constraints, one of the really interesting things that we've learned from looking at some of the hospital data uh, in one state which we have studied is that those who died um, uh, as a consequence of COVID, uh, deaths have occurred, uh, some of the deaths have occurred within two days, three-fourths of the deaths have occurred within five days. Um, and if you compare this with China, this, the, uh, from the point of de- the, 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 the death rate from the 
point of detection to, to actual deaths, um, the median was actually 13 days um, and 80, uh, or uh, the average was 18 days from when the sim- from the first onset of symptoms. So actually death rates, at least in this one state, seem to be uh, occurring at a much faster rate uh, than, than, compa- than other comparative data give us. And this gives us a, a points to some, in, uh, uh, th- th- this takes us to an important point, uh, looping back to some of what Jishnu was saying, just about how we are testing, uh, how we are identifying those that are testing, because it is possible that patients are perhaps arriving at hospitals a little later than they should be in order to be able to get um, in order to be able to receive uh, effective treatment. So uh, the challenge of, uh, of, of managing uh, the, the crisis, the, the need to be much more agile, which requires for a much more localized approach, uh, becomes very hard in a low trust, centralized response uh, to, uh, to the public health crisis, which is, I think, one of the big learnings that India, uh, that, that India has, I think, ha- is having to recognize on the policy front. The last point, and I'll wrap up there, is that I think it's important for us when we think about the question of state capacity and trust is also to ask what COVID is going to do going forward in terms of reshaping the nature of the social contract. And I'll just leave three questions that we should be thinking about, I think. One is around the question of choice, uh, the issue of trust that Jishnu brought up uh, in terms of why people, the stigmatization and the difficulties of, of getting tested also, I think, raise important questions about the issue of individual choice in the context of a public health crisis. It also raises important questions about privacy and it raises important questions about the dynamic of surveillance and the, the relationship between state and people, uh, um, uh, which I think is going to fundamentally shape questions of state capacity going forward. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, and thank you, Adnan. Thank you, Elsie, for having me here. Um, so I will uh, uh, speak uh, about mostly about Bangladesh and a little bit about Nepal. Those are the two places in South Asia where we're collecting data. Um, so let me let me just get started. So um, here's the situation in Bangladesh right now. So early on, I guess about a month or two ago, when we were uh, having these discussions in Pakistan, in India, in Bangladesh, in Nepal, the, the 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 debate was around lockdowns or not, right? We of course moved way, way past that debate. And so now, what Bangladesh has done is that after a lockdown, they've been thinking about how do we slowly scaled this back and they've gone with a zoning policy as I think other South Asian countries have as well, uh, where, um, you know, locations, so geographies are split into these red, orange, yellow, green zones. And, um, but as, 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 as the zoning definition makes clear here, uh, it's based entirely on testing information. And Jishnu already pointed out some of the issues with like relying on testing from the uh, from the perspective of like how incomplete that data could be right so what we have been trying to work with the government on so our work has been basically you know let's figure out what the government needs support on and let's try to be responsive but also try and insert uh, the types of questions that i you know we think as researchers that the government should be asking okay so um, so a key takeaway here is that it's primarily or exclusively based on epidemiological factors like testing data, right? However, this has been as much an economic crisis as this has been a health crisis. And given that it has implications for livelihoods, can we sort of get the government to think a little bit more about economic factors and integrating both epi and econ considerations into some kind of unified decision-making framework? So let me tell you about what we are pushing for right now. So 
So one is uh, like if, even if you're going to have you know these red areas where there's lots of restrictions on mobility and, and livelihoods, then we do need to figure out how to target economic support to those areas. Yeah. And second, uh, even within the red areas, you know, I, I think it makes sense for us to think about sort of sector-specific strategies. Um, and so, how do we how do we think about like prioritization of certain sectors? Okay. And then are there specific policy recommendations based on the data and evidence that we're collecting that we can all get behind and we feel comfortable uh, pushing? Okay. So on, on the sector level, so essentially, you know, we're also trying to figure out the politics of how do we get through to the important decision makers. And I think simplicity is very important. Um, uh, and, and so what we're trying to do is we have a team based on, you know, economists who are in Bangladesh at Dhaka University at BIDS, uh, Bangladesh Institute of Development Studies, uh, as well as um, the diaspora um, uh, outside the country. And, you know, we're trying to identify, you know, like what, working with epidemiologists, like how do we characterize transmission risk for, for each sector? How do we prioritize each sector on the economic side, right? So is it providing some kind of essential goods and services? Are the poor dependent on it, et cetera, okay? And so on the basis of that, just trying to um, create a like a two by two matrix that characterizes each sector by in terms of economic priority versus the risk of transmission, right? And then providing, hoping to provide some guidance uh, for sectors that fall in each of these four four quadrants, okay. um, and so for identifying high priority sectors, right? So is it you know how how does it relate to the say supply chain like the food supply chain? And here I just want to make the quick point that look uh, even there might be some red zones, right? But uh, we recently had the boro rice harvest in in Bangladesh, and it wasn't up for debate whether or not we do the rice harvest, even in a red zone where the disease is widely prevalent, right? Because if you don't harvest the rice and then you don't mill the rice, then we might have much bigger problems on our hands if the food supply chain breaks down. Right? So, so we need to think sector by sector exactly what uh, you know how crucial it is, how critical it is to the functioning of the country and the economy, and uh, and and develop some guidance at that level as opposed to just the, the geographic level, right? So we're looking at, uh, you know, using our survey data also to figure out like where are the poor families located, you know, in terms of product space as well as um, geographic space. Um, looking at input output tables to figure out, you know, is this how crucial it is for the function of the economy? And then also polling lots of experts in the, in the country. Okay. And so based on based on that, you know, create a priority ranking for, for each sector, right? And based on the epidemiological inputs, create a risk ranking for each sector. And um, a second component of what we're trying to do is that, okay, fine, you have this um, epi-based, um, you know, geographic, um, uh, uh, you know, prioritization. Uh, can we also think about specific factors on the economic side that are important, like food prices, food shortages, uh, remittance share of income? Because it turns out, I'll show you some data in a minute that um, um, that that's that's actually any you know it's a remittance dependent country. A large parts of the country are so this this graph, for example, shows you um, exactly where the you know based on government administrative data on migration permits, exactly where the migrants go from and which are the areas that would face a larger, larger uh, remittance shock. Okay. Uh, so creating an index on the economic side to emerge with the uh, epi side. And the idea is that we've also presented different types of options to the government. Here are the different ways you could actually do a, not just a spatial, but a spatial sectoral analysis, or you could just 
think about these two things in a disjointed way, or you could try to integrate. Right? So the idea is that you know if you present options and let the policymakers decide exactly what would work best for them. All right. So now let me just uh, for the remaining time I have, I'll just get into the details of one or two um, sectors data points uh, where there's um, sort of some new. Um, uh, inferences that we can make about uh, about well, what's important to focus on. Okay. So one um, uh, so, so one theme that's very very clear in the data, both from Bangladesh and from Nepal. So everything I have on the slide is uh, coming from two countries on Nepal. Some Nepal reference that you know migrant families are experiencing this crisis very differently than non-migrant families, okay. and there are two reasons for it. So one is that um, migrant sending households have experienced much sharper decline in income because there's been a huge drop in remittances. Okay, and why has there been a huge drop in remittances? So one is that you see in Nepal that in April, like the first couple of weeks of April, everybody was suddenly forced back very, very quickly, right? So people who would normally be away right now sending money back uh, are not able to, are, are not there, they're, they're back at home. And we've also tracked well, what is it that they're doing at home, and it's, it's, it's that they're not as productive as they would be otherwise. Uh, given that for these same families, we have data stretching back years, so we know exactly what the situation looks like during this season in prior years. Okay. So that's one issue. And the second issue is that um, the migrant returnee presence in the community is itself associated with showing COVID symptoms. Okay. So Jishno pointed out nicely what uh, what the um, problems of you know relying on symptom symptom based data is syndromic data is. However, this is like the the effect sizes are so large here, right? So basically, what you see is that if there's uh, if you talk to a person and you collect some symptoms data, and they happen to be in a community where somebody has returned in the last couple of weeks, right? Whereas another person who who's in a community who hasn't, um, the probability of showing symptoms goes up like 300%. And so not only, and whether or not this is real COVID or not, like not only are we noticing this, the country has as well. So what's that? What's happened is that there's been a huge stigma that's created around, around symptoms that might be COVID related, right? And it's gonna be very difficult for um, the migrants who are returning to therefore get, get reintegrated back into the local labor markets, right? So there's, so there's two aspects of what's going on. So one is these migrant families are hurting more, and second, you know, we need to somehow reintegrate them, but it's it's going to be harder harder to do it because of the of the stigma. Okay. And and so in in the case of international migration, so when I say that you know we we want to do sector level analysis in order to uh, you know help the government think about policy responses in this particular area, right? So you know first of all, documenting all these facts, right? And then think about okay, so now the migrants are forced back. What do you do? You know, either you need to figure out the conditions for repatriating them back to their destinations where they might work, or you need to figure out how to integrate them into the local labor markets or support entrepreneurship or whatever it is, right? And um, and so uh, so for that, so let's say let's take the repatriation um, idea. In that case, we need to figure out like the places where the migrants go to, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, how are they thinking about things? They still have labor needs. Are they going to want um, their the workers back and under what conditions? So can we get ahead of that game and say, look, if, if those countries will only take workers back under a certain set of conditions where somebody has to be tested or quarantined, right? We need to put those structures in place, right? 
And uh, BRAC in Bangladesh already had a pretty impressive sort of migrant reintegration program, and they are now facing a much larger, um, uh, much larger numbers because it's a much larger crisis. Right? So working with them with like designing new programs in order to figure out okay how do we how do we think about reintegrating them? It turns out uh, maybe not so surprisingly that mental health support is something that's really cr cr critical in this area right? um, and at this particular time. And you might actually also need to work with the Bureau of Manpower Employment Training with the Foreign Ministry in order to figure, you know, in order to negotiate with our, uh, you know, the the destinations that the migrants go to, figure out how to um, how to create the conditions for for repatriation. And then one other um, uh, uh, one other insight that comes from the data. So so when we collect data, so we've been collecting data after the lockdown. So that's this is the lockdown in Nepal, and this is the data um, that we see for, you know, relatively poor and relatively rich people. And on the y-axis, I have a measure of food insecurity. Okay, so whether you're reducing portions in the last two weeks. Now, what's been helpful is to be able to compare this against like last year's data, where we were tracking these same households to see what the situation was like in a normal year. Um, and also data from prior years on what the seasonal variation situation looks like. So, so basically, what you what you learn from the combination of all this is that situation is pretty bad right now. Which is food insecurity after the lockdown for the poor, right? It's pretty bad, but it's not as bad as it is during a regular lean season. Okay. It turns out in um, in September October, people report even more food insecurity than they did during the COVID period. But that's because of seasonal fluctuations in in agrarian economies. Right? But what you see from prior years is that like COVID luckily hit us at a time when food insecurity is normally very, very low. Right. So we've just approached the lean season levels. And I shudder to think what will happen when we get into like July, August, September, October. Right? That's when food insecurity in general, because of like crop cycles, is very, very high to begin with. Okay. And the combination, the double whammy of COVID lockdown plus this might lead to a much worse situation, right? So we can't make decisions right now on lockdowns and how to scale things back just on the basis of what we're hearing from the field at this moment. We also need to think ahead to how much worse the situation can get. All right. And then well, here's the final thing I'll talk to you about um, that uh, where, where the data across time has really helped us. So... Uh, uh, I think the world now agrees that masks are useful. Whether or not they're protective for the wearer is not so clear, but uh, it does protect others. Okay. So, so we had a, you know, we had an agreement to to distribute like millions of masks in in Bangladesh to do a large scale trial because uh, the WHO at that point wasn't clear, and they were claiming that there's no there's no solid trial that suggests that masks are helpful. So it's not clear that we should be uh, putting that as part of our recommendations. Okay. Now, we, we were about to do this, and then we started collecting data on mask wearing. And what you found was that very quickly, um, in, in both Nepal and in Bangladesh, in a period of like two, three weeks, mask wearing rates went up uh, very, very, um, or I should say mask ownership rates reported in surveys went up really, really high to above 90%, right? So at that point, we just kind of put a stop to it saying that, look, this doesn't look useful. Like to the donors, we said, take back your money. We don't, you know, we shouldn't be doing this right now. This is not what's uh, priority. However, as we kept looking, right, and we then also had people, you know, stand on the side of mosques and markets and street corners, etc., to just actually observe what's been happening with mass wearing. 
So just as quickly as it increased, it's actually also decreased. So now, based on observations at thousands of locations around the country, my best guess is that at best, 25 to 30% of people are consistently using masks. Yeah? And especially in places like mosques and markets where it's in, you know, people are in close proximity, that might be an issue. Right? So, uh, so I, my only point here for the audience is that uh, you know, things are changing extremely fast and we need to, um, uh, you know, we need to stay uh, abreast of, of uh, what's happening in, in, in a country in a given week in order to devise the right type of policy. So we've now resuscitated this project in order to figure out how do we actually uh, address this mask wearing issue. So it turns out maybe mask ownership is very, very high, but mask wearing isn't. So, so this goes back to Yamini's comments about state capacity, right? Where it's not that masks need to be distributed, right? That's not the problem. The problem is how do we enforce mask wearing norms in remote rural areas where, you know, people, you know, you might have one particular um, institution in place in markets, a different one in mosques, and who do you need to get involved? How do you get the imams at local village mosques to get involved in, in enforcing and monitoring for you, et cetera, right? It's a, it's a sort of a multi-dimensional problem that uh, requires a lot of social science expertise as well. Okay, let me stop there. Thank you, Mushfik, and uh, thank you, the panel. Uh, let's jump straight into questions. So I'll combine questions, and this time we'll go into reverse order in terms of uh, responding to those questions, uh, starting with Mushfik and um, uh, Jishnu, Yamini, and Tanya. So pick one or two questions that you want to answer. Uh, please keep your uh, responses brief so that we can bring more people into the discussion. So one question that came from um, um, Will Wong was, uh, how do we deal with the, this is a specific question for Tanya, um, how are you reaching out to people without smartphones and reliable uh, internet uh, um, reliable internet uh, uh, access in Pakistan? Uh, and Lohan from um, Oxford also asked, um, uh, how are different governments, are? Uh, what would you suggest in terms of like the, the inequality uh, that may have been increased because of COVID-19 response? Another set of questions come from uh, Nafisa. She's, uh, that question is for uh, uh, Yamini, but anyone can respond. She's asking about like, uh, uh, the policy response and victim blaming and stigmatization of certain communities, and how is that affecting the response policy response in particular countries? She's asking about India, uh, but I think the same is true for other contexts also. Keith Refn has a question about like uh, a number of you are talking about data, um, but how do you deal with the fact that we have uh, almost in all countries extremely limited data coverage? And I would also say maybe data reliability. And how do you base policies uh, on limited and potentially unreliable data? And how much faith do you put on mortality, morbidity, and other numbers? Last set of questions. I'll combine two questions that uh, Shabano from LSE and Aditya Ayer, again from LSE, asked about challenges in implementation due to weak state capacity. And I'll end up with the question of, what do you think is the biggest stumbling block in establishing a more cohesive strategy to deal with the crisis? Okay, so this is the first round. Let's keep our answers uh, brief so that we can go to future rounds. So let's start off with uh, uh, Mushri. 
Okay, sure. So let me, I mean, that's a lot of questions. So let me just pick one. I'll, I'll pick, there were a couple of questions which were about imperfect data. And I'll just give you one example of how to, um, uh, how, how we might think creatively about that, which is, um, it's true that we don't have great data. Like researchers don't, even governments don't, right? But one of the things, one of the sort of clever creative ideas we should maybe be experimenting with is that the one technology that is, is in everybody's pockets in, or most people's pockets in South Asia is mobile phones, which is what led to, uh, you know, Tanya's uh, 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 comments, although like we don't have smartphones everywhere, but we do have like basic mobile phones everywhere, okay? Now, um, so what the Bangladesh government was faced with this problem that look, it's regardless of what you think about lockdowns, we do need to go and target relief to the extreme poor. So how do we do that? Okay. So given how do we actually identify who the poor are, right? So here's the trick that we're using and working with the government and with the major telecom service providers. Uh, which is that in our household survey data, which is like, let's say 15,000 households, we have a lot of detailed questions for many years where we have the ground truth on who's poor and who's not. So for those 15,000 household problems solved, right? But how do you scale that up to 150 million, right? The trick here is to then say, okay, let's take those 15,000 households. We have their phone numbers. If you can get the telecom service providers like Grameen Phone Roby to give us all their call detail records, right? And then we can use some existing research done in Afghanistan and Rwanda say, okay, let's merge the two. And it won't surprise the audience to learn that poor people use their cell phones differently than rich people do, okay? And so what we do is make indirect inferences on the basis of their, like how they use their phones, who they're calling, how much SMS, how many phone calls, how wide their network is, right? And try to identify the subtle patterns that distinguish the poor from the non-poor. And if you can develop through machine learning methods, that type of subtle patterns and distinctive patterns, then you can give those patterns back to that algorithm, back to Grameen Phone and say, okay, you can now run this on your entire subscriber base. And we have a inference about who's likely poor or not poor in for, for the 100 million people subscriber base. Of course, we're gonna make errors here. We're gonna make inclusion errors, exclusion errors, right? So you need to probably add some human element to this. So like, let's say the algorithm from machine learning tells you these are high likelihood poor, these are medium likelihood poor, okay? Then you send SMS to people and asking them if they need support or asking them to answer three or four questions and refine your, your method that way, right? But that's just one idea for one creative strategy to do this. In the, in the in a data poor environment, I'll start. So, just one, you know, I wanted to pick up on this issue of of trust and data. Uh, so, a couple of things. I think it's not so. It's not clear to me that you know, for me, all data are data, and parts of it are usable, parts of it are are maybe worrisome. Uh, I've been quite impressed at how hard the states in India are actually trying to get their data systems working and, and all together, right? Uh, so I don't view this as a blanket case of, oh, you know, they're not managing or they don't have the capacity. I think they're trying really, really hard. Uh, what I have been struck by is exactly the opposite, which is how little help they actually have. Um, not only from the researcher community, but in general from funders, donors, international organizations, uh, almost no systematic assistance that says, you know, here's a group that can help you set up a way of, of managing all these data that are coming in uh, in a very dynamic and unstable fashion. Uh, and I think that's the big uh, uh, problem that we should solve at 
a multi-country level, uh, even within Indian states right now, every state uses its own kind of data system to manage things. It's it's not not fantastic, but they're really trying hard. And I think um, uh, we should be careful of not making a blanket statement on that part. On trust and stigma, I view it less as an issue. I mean, if you look at what's happened in India, uh, it started with, uh, uh, you know, some kind of blame of the, you know, there was this big uh, uh, event, the Tabliki Jamaat event in Nizamuddin, and then there was a uh, reporting in the media and in general of, you know, blaming uh, uh, Muslim populations. But the key here seems to be that it moves very fast. So it just looks like people are looking for people to blame. So, it, you know, it started somewhere, then it became the migrants, then it became the returnees, then it became the doctors. You know, you can't imagine. I mean, there are stories about doctors and nurses and people going into communities being, you know, told to go back, not to enter. So it's not as if there's a fixed identity that's being blamed. It's that we have created a societal uh, fabric that is always out to blame. And I think that is a very different and dangerous fabric that has been created in our society and something that I actually do not know at this stage how we come out of and say, look, this is something that is going to affect many, many, many different people. And instead of blaming each other or trying to uh, clamp down on, on, on uh, you know, uh, certain kind of things, we start thinking much harder about what would it need for a united approach in this context that is cooperative rather than confrontationary. So I'll stop there. I think these are, you know, very important questions, but at the same time, they need a seriousness of analysis uh, to, 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 uh, to, you know, answer with the nuance they deserve. Thank you. Thank you, Yamini. Thank you. Let me uh, uh, pick up uh, a little bit on where Jishnu left off, and it also responds to one of the specific questions that I, I saw in the list about Kerala versus other parts of India. And I think that uh, there's a lot to learn from there. One uh, one of the things that I think has really hit home uh, is the importance of strong, robust community organizations uh, and social solidarity uh, and and a, a very robust relationship between people and local governments uh, that in many ways characterize the nature of the social contract in the state of Kerala, which has which is where COVID in some ways, I think the first patient in India was found in Kerala and Kerala is sort of, uh, it's struggling, but it's certainly been one of the states that has really shown a positive response that was able to respond to a lot of the harder elements of uh, COVID responsiveness, uh, contact tracing, isolation, uh, the need for enforcement of lockdown in ways that uh, were less about command and control and much more about collaborative community uh, engagement. Um, And I think that is at the heart of how you deal with uh, the challenges of stigmatization and the challenges of low trust uh, that uh, have been that, that I too have spoken about and that seems to seem to be a thread through much of this conversation um, that 
a lot of the approach to all aspects of managing uh, COVID, certainly in India, uh, have uh, to begin with tended to be much more determined in the framework of command and control and managing of the lockdown uh, through through elements of of enforcement uh, and less about how one can bring deeper community engagement and community solidarity in being able to be responsive. Uh, And that's why, to me, the center state local dynamic, the the story of federalism is so central to our ability to manage and respond to COVID uh, because this is everything that we are learning about COVID is telling us that this is a very, very cluster-specific localized, uh, uh, the way in which COVID unfolds tends to be localized within states, within districts, within clusters. And um, the kind of the the response of the public health uh, architecture of the state has to be very local in order to be able to understand the disease and respond to the disease. And that requires much, much deeper engagement between local governments and and people. So so that's crucial uh, in how we think about this. And it's only through that that we will address these challenges of stigma, stigma, low trust, and many other things that we've been talking about. Thank you, Yamini. Tanya? I'll I'll, uh, pick up on two things. Um, I think one was around the smartphone penetration, um, which uh, exists all across the subcontinent, but also, um, and I think the second thing I'll pick up is sort of this um, targeted lockdown, which I know a number of countries, including Pakistan, are trying to do right now. And sort of, um, see, you know, seeing how that's evolving. So look, I think uh, very similarly to what um, a number of other people have said, um, you know, we have good reason to believe that there is at least a feature phone in, in every household um, in the country. So while smartphone penetration is still low, there are, there are lots of ways to, st- to sort of leverage these devices to get the word out. Um, and whether it's through SMSs, through robocalls, we're, we're currently in the process of experimenting um, a way to start doing disease surveillance um, through doing, you know, very simple robocalls. Um, so this is, you know, think of your old lady health worker knocking on doors, asking about symptoms, trying to see if we can supplement that um, just, you know, by, by doing these automated calls um, and, and doing surveys through that. So a long way to go, but again, you know, when you're thrown in these types of scenarios, you have to um, think about how you can just try a lot of different means to, to, you know, to cover the whole spectrum. On the this targeted lockdown piece, which, um, you know, I completely agree with what Yamini was saying. If you think about the layers that sort of trickle down and where response actually happens, ultimately, unless we're empowering the district administration, um, you know, they are the ones who have to take the final decisions on, um, you know, what type of, like, if there is a, uh, you know, certain radius, what lanes are we going to shut down? Um, you know, because you're not, we're not doing, and as a, as a country, the decision is very clear that we're not able to do countrywide or even province-wide lockdowns. It's, it's just, you know, that's a very clear lesson we learned from doing that, that first wave. So really the piece that we're evolving right now is, what role can data play right now um, at the national level to help district administrations understand where disease, you know, they know where cases have already occurred, but where could there be an outbreak coming where a very localized sort of lockdown um, may help? And also 
what type of SOPs then need to be followed in that particular locality. So for example, if there are, you know, 10 retail areas in that locality, those 10 retail areas should absolutely be shut down if that's the area that you're trying to be, if you're trying to lock down. And then monitoring the compliance of that. So giving them some mechanism to be able to monitor the compliance if they are actually putting that area in lockdown for 10 days or 14 days. And this is a fairly new thing that we are, we've now sort of started, started to put in place over the last um, eight or 10 days. And it's, there's very good reason to believe that when you do these targeted lockdowns, you do actually sort of blunt um, those very localized um, you know, uh, outbreaks that we are seeing. And we've been seeing them all over the country. Um, the, the one big thing I will call out before um, I, I uh, end here is we have Eid, the second Eid coming up in the next uh, five weeks, five or six weeks. And it's incredibly important, unlike the previous um, Eid, where there was, you know, that sort of whole period we're still recovering from. So one of the things that we're spending a lot of time thinking about right now is what do we need to put in place to ensure that you don't, because ultimately this is about behavior change and behavior change just does not happen overnight in, in countries like ours. So what do we need to put in place to ensure that that very large influx of people who then come and you know, sell animals um, during the second Eid, um, that we can sort of really tackle that? Because again, that could, if, if not done properly, that could lead certainly to another uh, peak, you know, four, four or five weeks after the second Eid. So that's something that there's a lot of thought being put into right now. Okay, thanks, Tanya. Th thanks, the panel. Uh, so let's go to the next round of questions, which I believe perhaps will be uh, the last round. So let me ask a few questions and also uh, add my own question to it. So we have a lot of questions still on the question of trust. So Devi Khanna from India, Evi Jodh Oberai from India, Eleanor Power from uh, LSE. How do we build trust in government and institutions to allow for effective, equitable response? Uh, there's a question for uh, specific question for Tanya Salim Hedrani from London. Pakistan government has failed to support rural population. What are the reasons for uh, for this failure? How do you how do you basically address the rural population? Uh, there are a couple of questions for Mushfiq for Bangladesh. Uh, Maharaman uh, Antonella Benkalari about Bangladesh testing strategy, but also about uh, the question of international migrants and domestic migrants in Bangladesh. Um, there's a question from Sarah Said uh, in Pakistan about for Jishnu. Uh, do you think false positives and negatives complicate the picture that you are painting and how do you incorporate those? Uh, one question that I'll add to all members of the panel from my side. Um, if we were to have, uh, I hope we don't have, but uh, future waves of this disease and we need to have our states in South Asia uh, be better prepared and more resilient to future waves. What is one single thing that you would want to see differently uh, in terms of state response uh, that is not being done today? Okay, so you can go in any order, but we only have like uh, roughly five minutes, so please be brief. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go, sorry, for, for, the, for my two questions, so we shall be quick. So Maha, um, I'm sorry to say I'm not very optimistic in that the growth of the disease, I think, is outpacing the growth of our testing capacity. Right, so we're now in a place where you know we cannot do individual testing, tracing based strategies. I think we're now in a place where based on some kind of testing, maybe some random sampling testing, maybe at least we can identify sub districts 
or districts that are hotspots, right? And and uh, target support, you know, use it to target support at the like more spatially aggregated level. Um, but uh, I mean, that's the best I can think of. But uh, but that's a question really for epidemiologists, not 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 for an economist to answer. And on the international and internal migration, um, I I'll just say that. Look, while uh, Bangladesh and Nepal, these are countries that are uh, very dependent on international migrants and remittances, like 22% of Nepali's GDP, for example. But it's also the case that most of the movement in uh, Bangladesh is internal, and a lot of it is internal seasonal rather than international, right? And so that means that there are poor rural households, right, who are normally just like forced to spend some of their time in urban areas in order to, uh, you know, make do during especially during lean periods and those uh and that has been cut off as well so so i think and and also like in in, in terms of disease spread initially it was all international migrants who were bringing the disease back from other countries but now it's going to spread uh by migrants internally right so i think like especially bangladesh needs to pay more attention to internal migration patterns uh even more so than international now Thank you. And what is the one single thing that you would want to see the state to do differently? I think about that. Okay. I can I can go. Um, I think look, um, if the single biggest thing I'd like to see the state do differently is to um, communicate in a sort of cohesive, in a comprehensive, and a consistent manner. Um, when you're you know when you're in a scenario again where you have lots of different people going up on media, you have this sort of you know. Uh, federal, provincial, you, you, abs- you public cannot be confused about what needs to be done. Um, and I think that's in- incredibly important um, across the board. And this is, you know, again, something that I would, I would love for the country to uh, do this differently. I'll just also quickly answer the question around rural population. So, so look, there is the, um, the response to the disease in rural areas, and then there is sort of the socioeconomic response. So, um, till fairly recently, this was largely an urban problem. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the disease. Um, it was, you know, the, the outbreaks were largely in urban areas. Um, and it was really when about a month ago when Eid happened and a lot of that movement happened from urban back to rural. And so as we're now as we're monitoring outbreaks, we're now starting to see much more happening in rural areas. So I absolutely agree with the question um, in that more needs to be done rural in rural areas, particularly around testing, because the testing is largely concentrated right now in urban areas. In terms of the socioeconomic response, there is um, there are about 12 million families um, all around the country, but largely in rural areas that have been um, provided um, benefits through this um, SAS program, which is um, the Prime Minister's socioeconomic uh, uh, program. And it's and it's been done um, fairly effectively and very, very quickly uh, over a very short period of time once COVID broke. So I do, uh, you know, and that as a result of that, we're not hearing the sort of impact of, you know, people running out of rations, particularly in rural areas. So um, there has been a response. Can it be better? Yes, um, absolutely. Like with like with pretty much everything else. Um, but you know, I, I do think there is there is decent cover um, on rural areas. No, go ahead, please. Ayan. Okay. Um, I think let me ask answer your second question first. Um, uh, uh, Anand, your question on the one thing um, that I'd like to see. I think I would like to see uh, a, a complete shift in the discourse on testing. Uh, 
currently testing is being seen as a uh, as the indicator of uh, how effectively government is responding and what that and it's also being interpreted and and test numbers are being interpreted in the public discourse as well as the government discourse as an indicator on uh, the quality of response so as uh, if 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 you're if you're testing it's so the number of tests shows your ability to test more is showing that you're that you're being responsive but positivity rates uh, are are an indicator that all hell is breaking loose and that is creating perverse incentives uh, at least among states in india for a race to the bottom and that's exactly the opposite we want to think about testing as crucial to learning about the disease and as a critical element of disease management it doesn't tell you that states are failing it tells you that you need to learn in order to be able to be much more effective about containing the disease so the discourse on uh, what how to interpret testing needs to be handled much dif- much much very differently and, and with a lot more maturity and that i think will also help push for greater transparency uh, in terms of putting data out uh, across all levels of government uh, and open up scope for people like jishnu's institutions like the center for policy research and others to start engaging with the data to get to get into learning mode as crucial to be able to fight the disease effectively and then last of course and it goes back to all the questions of trust uh, a, a discourse that moves away from command control enforcement of lockdown to a discourse that looks at the disease as something that we have to learn to live with in ways that actually bring community engagement rather than top down enforcement uh, and top down testing uh, i'm i'm cognizant that we're out of time uh, a very quick thing for the future you know my hope is look our public health systems our health systems have been in a crisis across south asia for a while uh and my hope is we can start to use not just this uh but start a general conversation about you know what are our health systems for uh, where are the poor where are the rich you know how do we want to design these uh and really treat it as a serious conversation instead of a blaming different groups uh who are rightfully having a very tough time trying to solve or make progress on a very very difficult situation so i think if we can start moving beyond the blaming to say can we as societies now sit back and say or move forward and say what what you know what's going wrong what's working uh how do we improve this i mean how do we make lives better for millions billions of people living in south asia when it comes to health that for me would be uh, a massive uh, uh, you know way of moving forward and thinking hard about why we are in the situation we are right now so let me stop there thank you jishnu uh, unless there is any final word from any member of the any panelists i think we are out of time so let me at this point uh, thank the audience and thank the panel i think it was a great discussion thank you very much